Hello and welcome to Centre Stage, a program for the International Centre for Women Playwrights, a virtual non-profit organisation dedicated to supporting women playwrights around the world. Centre Stage celebrates the work of members by showcasing excerpts of their work, followed by an interview where we can hear about their ideas and sometimes their process. I'm Jenny Monday, and in this Centre Stage, we have Carrie-Anne Owen in an interview about two plays, Tony and Al, and COVID-19. Carrie-Anne is one of ICWP's members in the United States. To begin with, we have an excerpt from Tony and Al. Carrie-Anne's work is copyright, and if you're interested in performing any of her plays, you can contact her through womenplaywrights.org. Here is the excerpt from Tony and Al. Hey, Tony, it's your brother. Yeah, it's Al. In Chicago with the outfit, what did you think? Kid, I hear you're in trouble and you need some help. Why didn't you call me? The boys and I would have pounded them into meat. I love you, kid. Y'all remember, I know you remember. When the boys and I, all right, we were little boys at the time, but we used to walk with you when you bicycled all over Brooklyn to deliver those prescriptions for Dad, and we was all so proud of you. You would get A's and go on to become a great, great doctor, and we're here in the outfit. You mend, we break, but we love you, kid. We're proud of you. Please, please tell me to come to Washington and the boys and I will bring everything we need to make sure you and the wife and the kids go on and on and on. We love you so much. We're so proud of you. The clubhouse has every headline about you and all the TV tapes. We're all so proud of you. Forgive me for being jealous of you when I was a kid. You made A's, I made D's. But kid, I was always proud of you. Now let me come to Washington. We've got weapons that even the CIA wouldn't believe. And we'll give our lives for you any day. And for the wife and kids. We love you, Tony. You stay alive. Call us the minute you want us to come out. And remember, Brooklyn, I may be dumb. I may have been dumb then, but there's nothing, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my baby brother. I love you, kid. And hey, we got some extra body parts. You need any body parts? We got everything, everything you might want to need because you're my little brother and I love you. I love you, Tony. I'll keep killing him. You keep saving him. I love you, bro. Now we have a short interview with Karianne, and I started by asking her if she could tell us a bit about the work we've just been listening to. Now I want to make very clear, to my knowledge, Dr. Fauci has no long-lost brother in the Mafia. Al is a completely fictional character. However, in reality, Dr. Fauci and I grew up 
15 minutes apart in adjacent neighborhoods in New York. If we had been in the same grade, he's eight years older than me, I'm sure we would have been good friends. As things stand, he is a great hero. I witnessed the full force of the AIDS epidemic as a young playwright in New York and San Francisco and Dr. Fauci did not shy away from the truth under any circumstances. He also did not shy away from the fact that you cannot put people at risk by speeding up or altering or reducing the time of the testing process for new drugs. And he was under great pressure. I think, God knows I can't speak for him, but both of us were brought up in ignorance of homosexuality and many other things. And we had to learn a lot quickly that our parents and teachers did not convey to us because at the time we were growing up, it was forbidden to even talk about those things. I'm sure you remember homosexuals were open to blackmail if they were working in the intelligence services or many other parts of our society. Dr. Fauci spoke honestly and frankly in his great effort to save lives along with many others. And you know, he was raised modestly. His father was a pharmacist in the neighborhood where my father practiced medicine at Maimonides Hospital in New York. But Dr. Fauci didn't come from a great deal of money. And he was never a snob. He never thought he was the king of the world. And I love him for it. If he had been my brother and he received death threats, I certainly would have done everything in the world to give all I had to protect him and his family. Has that play been performed or presented anywhere? No, it simply exists as a recorded comedy routine. But I've shared it with many people and they, they have enjoyed it. I'd love to see it broadcast nationally because I love Dr. Fauci. I know the world in which we grew up. I'm extremely proud of his courage. And I know he's received death threats that the family has had 24 hour security now for a long time, as have other medical activists concerned with the pandemic. And that is to our national shame. And it is important to me that we face the violence in this country and do something about it. We can't afford to lose one of the most brilliant epidemiologists of modern times at a time like this, nor can we afford to lose anyone else. We now have Karianne reading an excerpt from her play, COVID-19. Morning, doctor. Doctor, what's your name? I forgot. Oh, I'm Sylvia. Sylvia Carroll, my great-grandfather, changed it when he came off the boat, too. Why hide in a name? People figure it out anyway. Those private school girls sure did. Stop cleaning your glasses while I'm talking to you. 
all right, I'm not dying of the virus, so I'm not worth listening to. At least I was before the goddamn stock market crashed. You're looking at my hair. I know it's disgusting, but it's not my fault. They closed the goddamn beauty salons. No, no, no. It is not my goddamn fault. And stop looking at me over your glasses. You think I'm stupid, don't you? Because I lost my money and I care about my hair. Oh, sure. I know I'm better off than some people. At least my husband left me that townhouse on 63rd and Park. Free and clear, unlike some people I know. But I can promise you one thing. No matter where we are, and we have known each other since pre-kindergarten, always the same schools, Spence and Sarah Lawrence and Vassar, when we get up in the morning, we all look at our hair and each other's hair. Then World War III begins in the ladies' room. How ugly she looks in that $4,000 dress. No matter what she paid Bumble and Stumble, that beauty palace, she'll always look like a goat. That's why her children are little kids. <laughs> My sister died a week ago of COVID-19. Her last words were to blame it on the maid who came here from China. Was she demented? Am I demented? Well, I'm not here because of my dead hair salon appointments. I'm here because I can't stop tearing out my hair. See? Now that play was written during the New York lockdown. My first thought when New York was put on lockdown, although I was, I've been living out West since 1973, basically. My first thought was of the addicts and alcoholics who couldn't get to meetings. I am almost 47 years clean and sober and the meetings have always meant a great deal to me. So I was terrified for the younger, more vulnerable people. All of a sudden they were in a kind of prison in their apartments in New York with the telephone and the internet, but not face-to-face -face meetings with longtime clean and sober people who could have given them the love and the guidance and support they deserved. And then the question of medical treatment in an impossibly demanding situation. The young doctor, the psychiatrist, is told by his chief of staff that he can have very few psychiatry appointments, that he must devote 95% of his time to the ICU and the emergency room. And this is a true fact that everyone who had medical skills was needed by the COVID patients. So in my play, I dealt with several difficulties 
Number one, I was born Jewish and experienced anti-Semitism, and both Sylvia, the psychiatric patient, and Dr. Burns, originally Bernstein, both experienced anti-Semitism either directly or in their family histories, as I did. That is a haunting form of multi-generational post-traumatic stress disorder appearing in other minority groups, but certainly Sylvia would be my age, a little possibly a little younger, and she would have grown up among Holocaust survivors. She would have seen the world explode when Eichmann was captured and all of a sudden a great silence was broken. And no matter how wealthy she and her husband were, no matter how loving and decent, that question of fear of discrimination would have haunted her for the rest of her life, as it, as the play makes extremely clear. Then there is the question of multiple grief. When Sylvia is very fortunately able to get a psychiatric appointment, she's lost three people closest to her, including her niece from an eating disorder brought on by jealous teenagers and and their envy and her the little girl's response was to kill herself by starvation so these are all facts that i've had to deal with in one way or another but when you have the lockdown of a 10 million person urban area and the deprivation of support services given by human beings to other human beings in person. It is like fooling with a lit firecracker because people are going to die without the support of other people. The internet and the telephone can only go so far and only do so much. So that was my great worry when the pandemic hit New York. And Sylvia, the the older lady, the psychiatric patient, has a vicious complex about her appearance because of how she grew up and how other girls treated each other when they were in school. And she won't reveal her personal appearance, even to her rabbi, even to any anyone who could help her, because... All those wealthy beauty parlors are closed. They're not deemed essential services. So Sylvia can't keep up her appearance, spending hundreds of dollars every month the way she's used to. And she won't let anyone see her. Under the circumstances, she becomes pre-suicidal, literally tearing her hair out. And her survival instinct forces her to get that appointment, which is a miracle in itself, because the psychiatrist is so much needed elsewhere in the hospital, but that miracle happens and she gets the appointment. So my illustration, my portrait of the pandemic is many difficult forces coming together at a time of deprivation of human contact. And the reason for the lockdown was to stop the pandemic and and it worked the governor of new york the mayor of new york felt that 
the New Yorkers had cooperated in bringing down the numbers, but at what cost? And how many died? Not only of the pandemic, but of lack of support. Would love to see it performed, especially in New York. I want people to feel the empathy I have. My father was a doctor under an extremely difficult circumstances at the beginning of his career in the Great Depression. And he, as a very young physician, was assigned the treatment of pregnant heroin addicts and prostitutes. So the depth of feeling I have is very deep. And I, I hope that it shows in the character of the young psychiatrist who never imagined that he would be deprived of his specialty because of a disaster, a true pandemic, except it happened. And there are probably many medical people, I've talked to some here in Montana, in the same position. The pandemic, stopping it, demands immense sacrifice and tremendous professionalism. And I hope that audiences who hear or see my play about COVID will see the heroism involved and have difficult. Now try to imagine treating a, a woman in her 60s who is literally tearing her hair out and is pre-suicidal under those circumstances. She, she doesn't have the virus. The only way she goes outside her house is to walk her poodle, Claudette, and the poodle wears a mask. So obviously Sylvia has great love for those close to her, but has a terrible time with this ridiculous complex for very good reason about her physical appearance. She's completely terrified of rejection over her appearance. And that is a learned condition. Children learn it by being bullied. They learn it by being tormented. And it takes a lifetime to overcome it. What were some of the responses from the audience? Well, our group felt quite supportive of the play. Here in Montana, we're a little university town in the Rocky Mountains, Missoula. And we have done a very good job in bringing the numbers down because people cooperated with the county health department's demands and they were correct. Still, one terrible incident. I teach horseback riding as well as write. One of my students came down with it and I was horrified. However, she had been vaccinated and she bounced back quickly. Then the uncle of a friend of mine died of it. I don't think any of us have been sheltered from this. But as someone whose father was a physician, I had a depth of feeling and a depth of background to imagine the enormous demands on everyone. You, you cannot ignore a pandemic. You have to take charge. You have to go in there and fight and not ignore the truth. Well, these were young people and they were friends. 
and they all live in the same student residence of the University of Montana. And they were glad someone had been extremely open and honest about the dangers. So writing a play takes a lot of listening, usually the things you don't want to hear. I don't believe in human sacrifice. And for many years, I have felt that medical schedules, the doctors and nurses, that four hours of extremely stressful work equals eight hours of work under normal conditions and their schedules should be adjusted to the amount of stress they're under. Now, my father would never have said anything like that. He was not a rebellious person. I am a rebellious person. I'm a critic of the exploitation of people, whether whether it's a doctor, a lawyer, a garbage man, or anyone else. Why do we expect these people to function like machines? They're paying a terrible price in exhaustion, in poor nutrition, in depletion of their own immune systems. I can guarantee having observed very closely my father and my first cousin, Martin Benjamin, who's, they're both deceased now. They paid a terrible price for the stresses that were, that they took on. What was the motivating moment? And did you include that in the play? I think so. The motivating moment was absolute horror over what would happen to the addicts and alcoholics who were so in New York under the lockdown. Now, the main character, Sylvia, in my play is not an addict or an alcoholic, but she has a severe disorder, border, which is reaching suicidal proportions. And whether the disease is addiction or any other disease, you cannot get well without face-to-face personal contact with professionals, with support groups, with human beings who care and have empathy. Because I'm of Jewish heritage and I am really a religious universalist who adores the prophetic tradition in its widest interpretation, playwriting is an active conscience in Judaism described as a mitzvot or, or mitzvah religious obligation. And had I been raised like Dr. Fauci in a Jesuit high school or in a Muslim community, I would say the same thing, but with different words. This is a question of extreme obligation to humanity. Having survived great difficulties myself, I could not ignore a deep sense of obligation, especially to younger people. Humanity is my province. My concern for the people of Australia, especially the young people, is just as deep as my concern for people in America or anywhere else. Please convey my love and concern. Thanks to Carrie-Anne Owen for meeting with me via Zoom. Carrie-Anne is one of our members from the United States. Thanks for listening in to Centre Stage. We'll have more coming up soon.